You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Jacob, Griffin, Justin, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, James, Gingrich, Lisa, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, The Admiral Benbow, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitluck, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off last time, the Mocha frigate had just arrived at Bombay, and today we're picking up right where we left off. This is episode 258, Desperate and Bloody-Minded Men. The situation on board the Mocha frigate was not good, Just a day or two prior, the crew had watched their captain, Leonard Edgecombe, nearly beat their surgeon to death. They knew that Edgecombe was a bit mad and dangerous, but this was another level entirely. Then the captain ordered them to keelhaul the good doctor, Leckie, and they refused. When they made port, nearly half the crew abandoned ship, now... This was technically against the rules, it was a breach of contract for the company, and for an East India Company ship in Bombay, it was virtually against the law. But in a port as busy as Bombay, there wasn't much anyone could do about it. That's just for the regular crewmen, though. For officers, like the surgeon, for example, they had to go through official channels should they choose to leave the ship. Almost immediately, Dr. Leckie made for the East India Company offices to lodge a complaint. He submitted his complaint to Sir John Gayer. Now, you may remember John Gayer as the commander-in-chief there in India. He was one of the officers who was very nearly killed in the wake of Henry Every's attack on the Gunsway. Dr. Leckie had a ton of accusations that he levied against Captain Edgecombe. There was all the personal stuff, obviously, the 
beatings, unjust punishment, the attempted murder that had just happened, and then there were offenses that had nothing to do with Dr. Lecky. The doctor had dozens of examples of the captain beating a bunch of other crew members, including the doctor's own assistants, but there was another accusation, this one about the people of Johanna. Johanna is that island just north of Madagascar where the pirates of the round often put in to careen their ships. Captain Kidd, you may remember, careened the adventure galley there not long back. Well, apparently Captain Edgecombe had abducted a bunch of islanders from Johanna. They were a Muslim population, mostly of East African extraction, but with an Arabian ruling class. And they were a bit notorious for allowing the Pirates of the Round to careen on their island. Captain Edgecombe arrested a number of them as pirate collaborators. Now, I don't know what happened to these islanders. I can't find a source about their fate. It likely just didn't rate a mention in any of the official reports. But the question is, were they imprisoned or killed? I don't know. Sir John Gayer, though, saw nothing wrong with any of the captain's actions. He said in his ruling, quote, Considering he, the captain, did this to prevent enemy pirates doing further mischief in those seas, we do not think to turn him out, as Mr. Lecky required. End quote. Further, he found in favor of Captain Edgecombe and Dr. Lecky's personal grievances. He considered the complaints that the doctor made against the captain to be of a personal nature, found no official wrongdoing, but allowed Dr. Lecky to leave the Mocha Frigate. They did have to bring on a new doctor, of course, and we'll get to him in a bit. Now, while the beatings and the attempted keel-hauling were, in the eyes of the company, perhaps a bit excessive, they were within his rights. As for the people of Johanna... Well, that was just the captain doing his job. The Mocha Frigate was a warship of 350 tons and 36 guns. She carried a crew of about 80, though she could carry many more, as we will see. Her purpose was to guard the seas integral to operations of the East India Company and to hunt pirates. I don't think that the Mocha was quite as fine a ship as the Charles II had been, but they were on a par with one another, fast, well-armed frigates. Now that she was short, about a third, maybe closer to half of her crew, they needed men to work the deck, and likely many of those men from Johanna were put to work. But while those Johanna Islanders were probably familiar with a life at sea, they weren't sailors versed in operating big ships like the Mocha. That takes some expertise, which is why, when nine English sailors appeared on the docks of Bombay, Captain Edgecombe agreed to take them on board. They were rough, sea-darkened sailors, clearly, men who knew their trade, but not the respectable sailors of the East India Company. That's really no problem, though. Bombay was home to a host of merchants and other private ships, and the Mocha needed sailors. But of course, we know that they were pirates. Ralph Stout, his partner John Sam, and James Kelly among them. 
Robert Culliford was not among them, although he had been imprisoned with them and was part of their larger group of pirates in Bombay. Of that larger group, I can't really find a good source on exactly how they escaped their imprisonment, though we do know a bit. The first step in their master plan was to convert to Islam. This, according to Mughal law, allowed them out on a sort of work-release program on board Mughal ships. Now, I don't think that any of these pirates actually honestly converted. Considering that their propensity for drink did not abate after their conversion, and the fact that they continued to attack Muslim shipping, as well as sex outside of marriage and a generally sinful lifestyle, if they were actually Muslim, they were very, very bad Muslims. I think it more likely that this conversion was a lie to exploit this tradition within the empire of putting converted convicts to work. England, the company at least, had to abide by that law since they were still within the Mughal Empire, so the men were allowed to set sail. But if it was a lie, it was a lie to which the pirates were committed. See, before they were allowed to sail, before they were believed to have legitimately converted, they had to undergo one last ritual. They had to be circumcised. As adults, this was not an easy procedure. Now, they may have had the benefit of opium, which was plentiful in India, or maybe they had some hashish, but it was going to hurt one way or another. Probably all the pirates, but at least James Kelly, we know for certain, were circumcised. So here's what it probably looked like. The escape, not the circumcision. The men were handed over to the Mughal authorities in the wake of the Gunsway raid. There, they converted to Islam, then, you know, snip-snip, and they were allowed to sail under Mughal colors. They were probably not allowed to sail on the same ship, though. That would have allowed them to mutiny and take a ship away from her proper Mughal captain. But one by one, or in small groups, they managed to jump ship and make it back to Bombay, where they could hopefully find an English ship to take them on as crewmen. They would have to use aliases, but that was hardly a problem at all. Names were fluid in places like Bombay. James Kelly alone had almost as many names as Henry Every at least three different nom de plume. He signed his confession as James Kelly, so that's the name I'm choosing to use for him, but he also went frequently by James Gilliam, and here in Bombay he was called Samson Marshall. Once the pirates had all convened in Bombay, they had to look for a ship, but they soon found that no one was quite foolish enough to take on a gang of ten or eleven scruffy-looking Englishmen who were, you know, probably pirates. So Robert Culliford hatched a plan. They would all take work on whatever ship or ships they could find that were heading east-southeast. Any ship heading in that direction would put in at the port at Aiken. Aiken, today called Ake, is on the very tip of the island of Sumatra. Sumatra is the big island at the westernmost end of Indonesia, and it's the largest of what were called the Spice Islands. In 1696, it was Dutch territory, but it was a waypoint for any East India Company ship heading to the Spice Islands. 
From Aachen, the pirates would meet up and head for, apparently, they planned on China, which was, for now, the extent of their plan. Robert Culliford was the first of these pirates in Bombay to find a ship that would take him on. It took him and two other pirates in his group. They found work on an East India catch called the Josiah. Now, this wasn't terribly hard to do. Ships always needed men, and these men in dirty rags looked identical to hundreds of other sailors currently operating on ships all over the world. As Richard Zacks puts it in The Pirate Hunter, quote, It's not as though illiterate sailors had to produce a resume. Calloused hands and sailor jargon sufficed. End quote. The Josiah was tiny. She had a crew of only 21 men, 17 of which were local Indian sailors. The captain, Robert Culliford, and the two other pirates with Culliford were the only white men on board the Josiah. Now, she was built for regional trade, what they called local service in the company. That is, ferrying goods from the Spice Islands to India and then back again. The Josiah made for Madras on the eastern coast of India, but on the way, the captain fell ill. They put in at a place called Fort St. George, at least that's the official name. In 1696, everyone just called it White Town. Fort St. George was home to a couple hundred white people, mostly English, Dutch, Portuguese, and Danish. Outside the walls of White Town was Black Town which was home to everyone else. While the captain was recuperating there at Fort St. George, Culliford and his pirate companions were having a drink in the pub. They were throwing back beers with another sailor named James Croft of the frigate Fleet, which was also in port. Croft was the armorer on board the fleet, which means that he was in charge of the small arms. Once they were deep in their cups, the pirates offered to give Croft a tour of their Josiah, which James Croft agreed to. Now, I'm not exactly sure why the pirates wanted to bring Croft along for the ride. An armorer might be useful, sure, but was it necessary, especially at this early stage? I'm thinking it's likely that while they were drinking, Croft began to complain about the brass on board his ship, and the pirates thought they had found a fellow traveler. One drunken boat ride later, the four men made their way on to the Josiah, and her new captain, Robert Culliford, ordered the anchor line cut and set a heading out of the Madras Road. They got away quietly. Once the sun rose, the people of White Town were in an uproar over this stolen ship, but Culliford was gone. They set a heading for... Aiken, but first they landed at a tiny chain of very small islands called the Nicobar Islands. These lie between Madras and Sumatra, just north of Indonesia. Richard Zacks goes into an interesting bit of trivia about the original indigenous people of the Nicobar Islands. Apparently, and I can't find any modern evidence of this, but apparently the men had tails. Not full-on monkey tails, but a fleshy extension of the tailbone, the Cossacks, that could be as long as about ten inches. Zax quotes the French revolutionary Mirabeau, who 
did not like the Catholic Church. In an essay he wrote wondering what the Church would think about an easy-going islander enjoying coitus with two women, one in front and one behind. Wondering if the Church would count that as a sin using one's tail. But the women of the Nicobar Islands were free with their sexual charms, as was fairly common in many tribal societies, and the pirates were happy to enjoy their company. They feasted on pork and yams, mostly. The people of the Nicobar made a yam beer which the pirates enjoyed, which they should not have done were they good Muslims, but they really enjoyed these delicacies that looked to me almost like potato chips or crisps for our English friends. They were very thinly sliced yams that were briefly baked and then salt-dried, and the pirates loved them. But all of this begins to make the Nicobar sound like quite a paradise. And remember, this was really the pirates' first moment of freedom. They'd been either in prison or on the lam for years now. And here they were with beautiful women, yam beer, potato chips, and pork chops. Sounds pretty nice. But while they were toasting their newfound freedom, the armorer, James Croft, stole the Josiah from the pirates. He and the Indian crewmen who were still on board, apparently only like three or four guys, but they set sail from the Nicobar Islands and headed vaguely southeast. They landed in Aiken, where James Croft turned himself in and gave a full account of what had happened. He told the people of Aiken that some drunken pirates had kidnapped him and stolen their ship while he was on board. Croft, I believe truthfully, told him he wanted nothing to do with these men. He was briefly imprisoned, but that didn't last long. Once his captain and the captain of the Josiah had been informed of what had happened, he was set free. Which is great for him, but Robert Culliford and his two pirate companions were kind of stuck at the Nicobar now. I mean, it's not the worst place in the world to be trapped, but still. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. 
In the meantime, James Kelly, John Sam, Ralph Stout, and the rest of the pirates there in Bombay had also found gainful employment, this time on board the Mocha frigate. Now what happened on board the Josiah wasn't really a mutiny, Culliford just kind of stole a ship, but what happened on board the Mocha was. On 16th June, at about 3 or 4 in the morning, once the Mocha was well and truly out to sea, a cry rang out on board. It was perhaps the most terrifying word any sailor might ever hope to hear. It was worse than a warning of pirates or even the Kraken. Someone on board called out, Fire! These were giant machines made of wood and hemp, covered in tar and filled with gunpowder. You can outrun pirates or even the Kraken, but not a fire. With that call, the whole crew was out of bed in an instant, rushing to the deck, looking for the fire, generally, you know, panicking. But there was no fire. Unfortunately, our records for this mutiny aren't as detailed as those we have for Henry Every's mutiny on the fancy. But we do have an account that comes from a Mr. Vaughn and a journal from a Mr. Negus. Mr. Vaughn tells us that, as he was rushing to the deck, he ran into the captain's cabin boy, who, according to Vaughn, quote, was crying, saith the captain was killed and thrown overboard, which made me more afraid. End quote. This was the doing of James Kelly. Kelly had sneaked into the captain's cabin and slit Leonard Edgecombe's throat while he slept. Now, I can't really muster much sympathy for Captain Edgecombe, but the cabin boy awoke, and seeing his master bleeding to death was told by James Kelly that the ship had been taken. That cabin boy was the first crewman not among the mutineers to know what was happening. But word began to spread that the crew and the armory had been seized. Now, it wasn't really quite clear to anyone on board that this was a mutiny led by James Kelly, not yet. They seemed to have thought that the ship had been attacked, but they couldn't find any offending pirate ship out there. It all, though, became clear enough when a shot rang out. It was a booming crack that split the night open. A blunderbuss. The carpenter cried out that he was wounded, and when the men looked at him, he had quite the hole in his chest. That's when Mr. Negus realized that that group of men they'd picked up in Bombay were all armed, along with some of the more disgruntled crew, and they appeared to be standing guard. Mr. Negus was the chief mate, and he attempted to lead a few of the other officers to the forecastle. That's the forward structure on a ship that housed the crew, usually. Were they able to make it to the forecastle, they would have been able to barricade themselves and perhaps defend against the mutineers. But James Kelly spotted them and soon enough the mutineers rounded them up and had Negus and his followers guarded in a tight circle. The rest of the night passed mostly in quiet as the mutineers cleared the ship. There was sporadic fighting, but not much. Come dawn, James Kelly gave a speech. He informed the crew that he and his men were now in command of the Mocha, and they planned to go out on the account. Among them, they had some impressive credentials— these were pirates who had sailed with Thomas II and Henry Every, and they invited every man on board, all of the regular crewmen, to sail with them in freedom and infamy, a merry life and short, as Bartholomew Roberts would say. 
and some of the crew agreed, in fact, a significant amount. A few, though, chose not to sail with the pirates, and they were allowed to go free on the ship's pinnace. That lot numbered 18 officers and their servants, and those men were actually treated pretty well here. They were given water and bread and rope and an anchor and even a sail, better than what the officers from the Charles II had, and much better than what the officers from, say, the Bounty would have some years later. As for the rest of the crew, though, those who stayed on board, it's hard to say who was willing to stay and who was forced to sail with the pirates. Mr. Negus said, quote, There were several more desirous to leave the ship with us, and we're confident there were real within. Namely, John Death, surgeon. And I've got to stop here. I mean, that's the surgeon they got to replace Mr. Leckie, and his name was John Death. I mean, let's just pause here and acknowledge that in the summer of 1696, there was a real live pirate named Dr. Death. I mean, if you're writing a book about pirates and you name someone on board Dr. Death, your editor is going to tell you to take that character out, to change their name, because no one's going to believe that, but here he is, Dr. Death. Now, he didn't want to be a pirate, of course, he was a bound man, but I'm not going to let that stop me from reveling in the coolest pirate name of all time. But Mr. Negus goes on, John Death, Surgeon, all four carpenters, John Brand, Cooper, Isaac Coleman, Formist Man, and Francis Dyer, Cook's Mate. End quote. Those are all men that he's saying were forced to sail with the pirates against their will, but he goes on, quote, to all outward appearances, can say no less of Ralph Stout, our designed pilot for the Straits of Malacca. End quote. Mr. Negus is saying that Ralph Stout, who he knew by the time he was giving this account, was definitely a pirate. He's saying that Ralph Stout appeared to be one of those men forced to sail with the pirates. By which he's saying that you really can't trust what we're seeing here. The Cooper the cook's mate, and John Death may have looked as though they did not want to sail with the pirates, but who's to say? Now, we're going to catch up with what happened on the Mocha next time. For now, I want to follow those 18 officers on that pinnace. They had a rough few days at sea, but eventually they made their way down to Aiken at Sumatra, and there they found James Croft, formerly of the fleet frigate, now kind of a hero for saving the Josiah from pirates. Once the 18 officers and their servants had recuperated, they had a dinner with John Croft and all shared their stories. It seems that they began to piece together Culliford's plan here, or at least realized that these pirates were not isolated incidents, that they were one group and these honest seamen began to hatch a plan of their own. See, there was another English vessel there in Aiken called the Elizabeth, and her captain, a George Wallace, was also at this dinner. Now, George Wallace did not like pirates one bit, and all of the officers from the Mocha hated pirates, especially since they had just been mutinied against. And then, of course, there was James Craw who might not know where the Mocha was at this moment, but he knew just where to find three other 
pirates. Only nine of the men from the Mocha agreed to go along, but that was plenty. Those nine men, and James Croft and George Wallace, all gathered all of the guns they could find and the swords they could find in a small port like Aiken, and they climbed aboard the Elizabeth. James Croft guided the ship north to the very island from which he had taken the Josiah from, Robert Culliford. And then this unassuming small little merchant ship anchored just off the shore. The captain was clearly white, as anyone with a spyglass could see, but the rest of the crew were just Indians, not a real fighting force, at least. That's what was visible on deck. Robert Culliford and his companions spotted this enticing merchant ship just sitting out there waiting for someone to take her. They collected a boat and rowed their way out to the Elizabeth, where they hailed the captain. Captain Wallace hailed them back. And these three poor men, stranded here at the Nicobar Islands, they had quite the tale of woe to share. They told Captain Wallace that they had been hit by a terrible storm. They'd been thrown from the deck and washed up on this wild, barbarous island. There were these men with tails, and and it's about this time that Captain Wallace was throwing down a rope ladder for them, and they painted their tails in these green stripes, and you won't believe what they did with them. And about this time, the men began to climb the rope ladder. But it wasn't all bad. You wouldn't believe what some of these ladies were willing to do. Oh. Thanks for the hand, and they've got these just huge, and it was about this time. Once these three innocent sailors, marooned on this wild island, were on deck, that ten men, heavily armed, swords and pistols drawn, burst onto the deck. And to their credit, the pirates did jump into action. They had swords of their own, and they went to work with them. I imagine this looked just like an old movie, you know, Errol Flynn stuff. Three villains facing off against two swordsmen each, but it didn't last long. James Croft and two of the men from the Mocha got behind the pirates. They jumped them and wrestled them to the deck. There was a bit of a tussle, and it appears that at least one of the men attacking was badly injured. But before long, Culliford and his friends were all hogtied and carried below deck. Which appears to have been it for the great pirate Robert Culliford. The Elizabeth set sail for Bengal, kind of where India meets Indochina. Now, Bengal was an East India Company stronghold where the pirates would be, by law, hanged. But there in the Bay of Bengal, a storm bore down on the Elizabeth. They were forced to put in at the Mergui Islands, which today are part of Myanmar, but back then, in 1696, they were part of the Kingdom of Siam, basically Thailand, which was one of the few powers in the region that successfully resisted European encroachment. Siam is, in fact, one of the few powers in the world that was never colonized by European powers. The English were not welcome in Siam, but these men were desperate for a harbor to ride out the storm, so they made their way to a passage between two of the islands, and they laid down anchor. Thankfully, while they waited out the storm, nobody decided to board them and kill them, and eventually the storm did break. The crew got the Elizabeth ready to sail, but then... A ship entered the road, 
a large vessel blocking their exit into the Bay of Bengal. Captain Willis pulled out his spyglass and named her a frigate, flying English East India Company colors, probably he estimated about 350 tons and 36 guns. Captain Willis did not know that ship, but nine of the men on board the Elizabeth knew exactly what ship that was. They had been her officers just a couple of weeks before, before a mutiny led by pirates that took the ship over. It was the Mocha. Next time, the Mocha will become the most fearsome pirate ship in the Indian Ocean. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended us to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews that help get the show noticed. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Ben Franklin's World, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can always check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.